Lord, I thank you for this amazing book that we have the privilege of studying together. I ask that you would give us insight and ears to hear truth from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if everyone can find their seat. Well, a movie was just getting to the most exciting point when a woman in the theater began searching for something under her seat. And she was disturbing the man next to her. What are you looking for? He said, clearly annoyed. Well, I dropped a caramel, the woman said, and kept looking. I think it fell under my seat. You're going to go to all this trouble for a caramel that fell on a filthy floor? The man asked in disbelief. Well, I certainly am, she said, because my teeth are in it. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Anyways, that's always a joke about nothing. Okay. I'm sure most of us have had a dream, experience of having a dream that seems so very real. Sometimes we wish we didn't wake up because it was so wonderful, and then other times we are so thankful that we wake up that it wasn't real. Well, far different from our human dreams was the experience of the Apostle John as he was given an actual vision by God concerning future events. God didn't have to reveal this truth to him and by way to us, but in his kindness, he did. So we can walk through our journey in life knowing that we have hope forever because we know how it ends. We know Jesus conquers all. Some people are thrilled to read and study this book. Others feel intimidated by all of its symbolic pictures. We can have charts that help us keep things on a timeline. We can read good commentaries to help get some insight when we're stuck. But we need to realize that this book is about Jesus Christ. So as you do your lessons, I remind you that our response should be like that of John in chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. So I encourage you, ladies, to be diligent, to try to do the lessons as best you can, and not to quit just because it gets hard, and it it, it will be, and it's hard for everybody here. As we do this study, we need to be like John and realize that this is all about Jesus, the Lamb of God who deserves all glory, all honor, and obedience from his own children. So please don't allow the details or difficulties that come about to confuse or intimidate you. See this study as a way for you to have a better understanding of the God that most of you claim to know and love. I've been helped in organizing this first chapter with my husband's notes. I thought he had a good outline, so I'm just going to use it. So four keys to understanding the book of Revelation as seen in chapter 1. And that begins with the person of the book. And even though you may have a heading in your Bible that reads the Revelation of St. John, the divine, or the Revelation of John, these are actually not accurate at all. We read in verse 1 that this is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is a book that reveals Jesus in a unique way that many have not seen him before. If you've ever studied the book of Daniel, you are aware about so many truths and challenges in that book that are about the coming Messiah and all that he would do at the end times. The New Testament gospel accounts identify Jesus as that promised Messiah from the Old Testament who fulfilled prophecies concerning his coming. And the rest of the New Testament then explains who he is, what he has done for us. In Revelation, though, this book reveals Jesus how he is right now. 
Studying the gospel accounts, we see him in his humiliation, coming to earth as a baby, humble, lowly, entering the world in order to grow up, live a perfect life of obedience, and then dying in the place of sinners as he took their sin on himself on the cross and then rose from the dead. But Revelation reveals to us a reigning, powerful, and victorious glorified Jesus in all of his glory. The Greek word, as you studied, uh, for Revelation means an unveiling, having the idea of taking the covers off. It is a book, it's as if God pulls back the covering so we can clearly see Jesus at this moment. We will see name after name and title after title as Miriam prepared that for, for us. Uh, as we go through this book, we'll see his actions display the reality that he is the glorified conqueror. It is true that this book deals with prophecy, but we can keep reminding ourselves that it is primarily a book about Jesus. This is not an academic exercise so you can say you have a handle now on all end time events. This is given so we see Jesus and so we worship him. The Greek word for revelation, we get our word apocalypse, as we oftentimes it's titled the apocalypse, but what was previously concealed is now revealed in this book. So if you only studied the gospels, you would never see that the suffering Messiah is now the reigning conqueror. Another key is the purpose of the book, verse 1, the last part, but which God gave to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. So this is not only a book of the revelation about Jesus, it's also from him. This is a book for believers to know and understand God's prophetic plans, what's going to take place in the future. When we read that these things will shortly take place, we may think it doesn't feel shortly. It's been a few thousand years and we're still waiting. But the word shortly in this context means quickly. So when events described in this book begin, they will come in quick succession and sequence. So once these events start, everything will happen very rapidly. We notice that this book was written for believers. His followers are called the bond servants, and they are the ones who read and gain insight about Jesus. Unbelievers may think this book is like a sci-fi movie that they've seen, but hopefully they would still read it and be able to gain understanding about Jesus. Like Daniel, this book has many symbols that can often be confusing. However, the Bible interprets these symbols and explains their meaning often in the context of the passage itself. If the immediate context doesn't shed enough light, then we can usually find the meaning elsewhere in another passage, often in the book of Daniel. And that's why studying Daniel and Revelation usually go hand in hand. There are also symbols that can be better understood when you know more about the life of the first century readers who were the actual recipients of this letter initially. Everything in this book is not symbolic, and like all scripture then, we need to take this book literally unless the context would tell us otherwise. God did not reveal himself to John with all of these details so that John and all fellow believers like him would not be able to understand anything being said. This revelation about Jesus is given to his church so that we can grasp what is going, on, going to happen in the future. Another key to understanding the book is the man who recorded it. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. 
So God gave this book to Jesus. He gave it to an angel. The angel gave it to John. This is the same John as you studied who wrote the Gospel of John for 2nd and 3rd John. He is a very old man by now, exiled on the island of Patmos because of his faith in Jesus. He is the human author of the book, but most of the time an angel is using a vision revealing the message to John, and John is simply writing it down for us. So this vision came to John around 60 years after Jesus died. His memories of Jesus were at a stooping to wash his feet, letting men crucify him, and seeing him resurrected. But John now finds himself miraculously translated in time and space by an angel so that he can hear and see what's going to take place in the future. The future matters to all of us living now. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. <laughs> the promise of this book then is seen in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. This is the only book that promises a specific blessing to those that read it and those that hear it. So you are specifically blessed because you're here doing this study. In the ancient world, individuals didn't have copies of the scriptures like we do. They had a letter read at the church while everyone listened to the one reading it. So John makes it clear that there's a special blessing for the one reading the book and to those listening to it. However, it's not enough to read or listen to it being read. The blessing is for those who heed the things written in the book. And next week, as we start studying chapters 2 and 3, the sharp two-edged sword of the Word of God is going to pierce you. He is going to examine specific churches, and in doing so, the Lord is examining the life of each one of us here. Are we hot, cold? Lukewarm, lukewarm, nauseating to God? Uh, do we compromise our faith? Well, one author put it this way. In the seven churches, we have both every kind of church and every kind of member, which not only existed in John's generation, but also exists throughout the church age. The seven churches are a composite picture of all local churches on earth at any particular time. So the blessing is for those who obey the Lord as he examines our hearts. The people John sent this book to were in the midst of persecution and suffering. They were unsure what was going to happen to them in their future. And as you see Jesus revealed in this book, then you know he wins. You know that evil and sin and all these dictators and powers and authorities who are putting Christians to death will end. They'll be defeated. Therefore, John's readers and us by way of application can continue to be strong knowing that the final chapter is total victory. Heartache, pain, grief so often distracts us and enters our lives, but it's only temporary and it always has a purpose. I love Elizabeth Elliot in her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing. So the encouragement this letter brings to the believers is seen in verses 4 through 8. We read, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sin by his blood. That's like a little picture of the gospel right there. 
He loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So comfort for the present is really found in these verses. John begins by identifying himself, and then he identifies who he is addressing the book to. The seven churches in Asia Minor, as you know, it's modern Western Turkey. The typical greeting begins often in scripture with grace and peace to you. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It's his enabling power to live a life of victory for him. Peace is something that only can come from God when we live in the midst of trying circumstances. These seven churches needed God's grace. They needed God's peace as they were in a period of intense persecution. This is the same grace, the same peace available to every individual in his church today, despite the chaos that may surround your particular life. The entire Trinity is involved here in providing with us with grace and peace. Notice it says, from him who is, who was, and who is to come. So God the Father is revealed, just as he revealed himself to Moses, I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. The greeting is also from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That can be confusing. Who's he talking about here? Well, one view, which I think makes the most sense because I think it's a picture of the Trinity, is that this is God the Spirit who has seven attributes that reveal God in his absolute fullness in Isaiah 11.2. The number seven, as you know, appears in Revelation so many more times, 54 times in this book. Seven churches, seven candlesticks, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, just to name a few sevens. The meaning that most Bible scholars agree on is that the number seven is completion or fullness. So as this book is a book of completion, so we see this number frequently. And the Holy Spirit is completely and fully able to meet our needs. Some believe that verse four is referring to a special order of angels. One of your handouts, the author believed that, revealing that once again, scholars don't always agree with each other, but that's okay. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the faithful witness that God sent. He died and rose again, was therefore the firstborn of the dead. It means he is the first of all who will rise from the dead. He is the supreme one in rank. He is also the ruler of the kings of the earth. He has the power over all. And one day, as we know from Philippians, every knee will bow. These truths about the Godhead are given to bring us comfort. The entire Trinity is involved in giving you peace and grace. This is a huge contrast to the rest of the book where you will see the experiences of people who are not believers and the horrors they will face. We ought to be filled with such gratitude that God actually stoops to give sinful people like us his grace, his peace. And John responds in verse 5 by giving praise to Jesus who loves us right now in the present. That love took him to the cross where he died for our sins to release us from our sin by his blood. In doing this, he set us free from the chains of sin that controlled us. He made us a kingdom. He made us priests to his God, the Father. And unlike the Old Testament priests who offered sacrifices to God on behalf of others, we are called priests 
and we have the freedom to go into his presence with our spiritual sacrifices. I love that. When you go through the Old Testament and read the, the whole priesthood system, and only one the high priest once a year could go to the Holy of Holies, we get to go there any moment of the day or the night. Therefore, Hebrews says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we have confidence for the future. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So when this letter was written, the church looked defeated, I'm sure, by the Roman Empire. In our society, believers are laughed at, portrayed as fools, idiots, intolerant bigots because we don't embrace and agree with their choices of sin. But in the midst of hostility, back when it was written, as well as for us today, John gives all believers a glimpse of the triumphant return of Jesus. This is the second coming, not the rapture of the church. For his church, he is to come as a thief in the night. We'll see in Revelation 3.3. His second coming is at the end of the seven-year tribulation period where he comes in the clouds. That's how John saw him leave in the clouds. But when he returns, every eye will see him. And finally, Israel as a nation will see him and recognize the one they pierced. And they will repent. Matthew 24, Romans 9 through 11 speak of this. So it doesn't mean that everyone is going to see him because they ha saw their TV, computer, or iPhone. Rather, it is going to be the radiance of his glory lighting up the sky. And as you know, the sky will be darkened during the seven years tribulation. And that is the sign of his coming. His glory will be unveiled and people will realize that judgment has come. Therefore, all the tribes of people will mourn as they realize they are on the wrong side. It is not a remorse over their sin. It's a crying out of frustration and anger. No matter how dismal things may appear to be now, when this moment finally arrives, Christ returns in blazing glory, absolutely triumphant. So how do we know this is true? Well, he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Therefore, the Almighty can do whatever he wants to do. And he's chosen to let us know. He is the one we saw when we studied Genesis. He is the one Revelation reveals to us. So you see, he has provided us with grace and peace to survive living when it's our turn to do life on planet Earth. And he has also given us great confidence for what our future is. Now John shares with us the vision of Jesus. John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a, lo a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So the setting here, John tells us, uh, this vision was received while he was in exile on Patmos. John himself had suffered many things for his faith. He was a fellow partaker in tribulation and uh, the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. He wasn't exempt from suffering. Everybody else, I think, had been martyred. But John was sent to this tiny island where Rome sent prisoners, similar to our modern-day Alcatraz. 
It was rocky, it was a volcanic island, and prisoners carried granite chips and rocks from cliffs to the sea or to a dock all day. This granite was used to build Rome's temples and palaces. So around age 90, John's on this island carrying rocks, day in, day out. Roman history states this, that when you were banished to Patmos before you went, it was preceded by scourging, perpetual fetters, scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleep on bare ground, a dark prison, and work under the demands of a military overseer. So John found himself in this place because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He continued his entire life to be faithful to the witness for Jesus. He never lost his zeal, and though he lived a long, hard life, and he was isolated, think of it, from all family, from all fellow believers, from fellowship with others, Rome tried to silence him, but God overruled. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Isn't that interesting? Apparently, John was worshiping the Lord on a Sunday. His captors allowing him time to do this, we're not really told how he was able to do this. But his heart is likely with reaching out in his heart to fellow believers far away from him. And while he was worshiping Christ, he hears a voice. John had not heard this voice audibly for 60 years. Christ was speaking to him again in a loud voice. It was clear and loud like a trumpet. John is told to write in a scroll or book what you see and send it then to the seven churches. Tradition says John had ministered at Ephesus, so it makes sense that these letters are addressed to the church at Ephesus and the six other surrounding cities nearby. All seven churches were located on a major highway that was a postal route, so the letters would have been delivered clockwise. This trumpet-like voice was behind John, and then John turned around. And what he saw was so amazing, glorious, Amazing sight a mortal man could possibly ever see, a vision of the glorified Jesus Christ standing in the midst of his churches. The content of this vision, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and, I, I, and having turned, I saw seven lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash, and his head and his hair were like white wool and like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength the seven golden lampstands that John saw are clarified for us in verse 20 they are the seven churches Excuse me, the purpose of the lamp of a lampstand, any lampstand, is to hold out light. So the church is pictured as a lampstand lampstand because it's supposed to hold out the light in its community of the gospel. So the whole world can see. And in the midst of these seven churches stands Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Christ that John saw. And what he saw was this picture of Jesus. That's symbolic, but it represents his attributes, his characteristics, truths taken from the Old Testament, and symbols about God. And the vision here reveals Christ in his relationship to his church, using Old Testament pictures of him, like a son of man, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. He is a real, genuine man. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he stands in the midst of his church. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. 
This refers to the dress of a magistrate, of a ruler, someone with authority, someone with dignity, Isaiah 6.1. The regal robes of a king and the clothing of a judge. And he's girded across his chest with a golden sash. Isaiah 11.5 speaks about his righteousness and his absolute authority as a judge. Verse 14, his head and hair are like white wool and snow. We see that in Daniel 7, 9, the eternality of God. The ancient of days is God. So the white hair speaks of age and wisdom. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, Daniel 10, 6. He sees all. He sees every activity, every action, every attitude of every individual in every church. Because he sees all, he alone is qualified to judge righteously. His eyes were like a flame of fire, Daniel 10, 6. He sees all. He sees right into our hearts. So he sees everything going on in, his indivi- in every individual church because he can right, see right through with his penetrating look. He alone is qualified to judge perfectly. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's made to glow in a furnace. So this is the perfect moral purity of Jesus walking among the churches in judgment. And ultimately, he'll judge the whole earth and those upon it. But the bronze altar in the temple was related to sacrifice for sin and divine judgment. Verse 15, the last part, his voice was like the sound of many waters. Daniel 10, 6 says the same thing. His voice is powerful. If you've ever stood by a loud waterfall or big ocean waves, you know, you can hardly hear the person next to you for the loud noise, how loud it can be. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, which are the seven churches. The right hand is the Bible, and the Bible represents authority and control. There are different interpretations of what angel means here. Could refer to a human messenger or a literal angel. The word that is used here is used both ways in scripture. It can be understood to mean that these seven stars are the pastors of each church. And as Christ is addressing the churches, he's also dealing with the messengers responsible to deliver the message to the church. In Daniel 12.3, the term stars is used Uh, for important people. So they are in his right hand, or they're certainly under his protection. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. These are words of judgment, which we'll see in Revelation 19. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So John used a phrase from Judges 531, where it describes those who love the Lord. God's glory shines through the face of Jesus and through the church, which reflects his glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Well, what was the effect of this vision? When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Because obviously he was. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels uh, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, if any of us saw what John saw, we would do the exact same thing. John fell flat at his feet like a dead man. John knew Christ personally. They had shared years of ministry and time together. He was the one who had leaned on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper together. He had worshipped him 
all of these years, and now he falls flat like a dead man. This is always the response of one who sees Christ. Isaiah had the same thing. He responded, woe is me. I am unclean because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. When someone is in the very presence of the glorified Christ, they become acutely aware of how unworthy they really are and their sinfulness and their insignificance. What John saw of Christ was perfect wisdom, dignity, holiness, judgment, power. And what he saw in himself was nothing but someone unworthy. We must all come to that point in our lives where we realize our own nothingness, our own sinfulness, which is so glaring when we get a glimpse of the majesty of Jesus in Scripture. There is no place ever for human pride in the Christian life. And the more you know him, the more you know this Jesus that we're looking at, the more you realize how desperately wicked you are. Praise him that he loves us unconditionally. Praise him that his blood keeps cleansing us from sin day to day. If you think you're making progress in an area, you know you're blowing it in another area. If you think you've really done well, you kept your mouth shut, but you're having all the same thoughts, you know the battle is never ending with sin. If anyone tells you that they've had an experience and they had a talk with Jesus and a vision and they just kept having their talk, realize that in scripture, those who ever had a glimpse of Jesus glorified fall down like they're dead. Jesus places his hand on Jesus' shoulder, I mean on John's shoulder and says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Uh, Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm the living one. I have conquered death. Notice it's Jesus who controls death and the place of the dead. He is the sovereign one over controlling who dies and when they die. He controls life and death. And I find this truth about Jesus offered here as a great hope and comfort. It's not bad luck. It's not being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not a human doctor who screwed up. It's ultimately Jesus alone who has the key who unlocks the door to life to death. I'm not excusing human responsibility for bringing harm to someone and causing their death, but in spite of the appearance of circumstances that look like it was under total human control, realize that in reality it is a sovereign God alone, one who gives life and one who takes it away. Psalm 139.16, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. This is the truth we have to cling to. And it's not just about length of life, and that's true, but it's about every detail that's going on in your life today. God has ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. So everything that happens in your given day, your given evening, your long night, is ordained by God in the length of your life as well. Jesus tells John in verse 19, the inspired outline then for this book. He wants John to write down the things which you've seen, the things that are, and the things that are going to take place. Then that is exactly what John does. And for the next few months, we're going to be looking closely at what John recorded. First of all, for the church of Jesus Christ. So, ladies, we begin a study in this amazing book with a picture of the glorified, holy Jesus standing in the midst of his church, ready to judge individuals' hearts within his church. If you claim to know him as your Lord and Savior, then this evaluation that he is about to give 
is for you and I personally and for the church you're a part of. We see areas that need to be repented of. It's when we see Jesus beyond the manger in Bethlehem to his glorified present state that we fall down in repentance, begging forgiveness, worshiping him, and being in awe of who he really, really is. So be careful that the focus of your faith is not on you. The church does not exist to meet your needs. The church exists to bring God glory and to train up people to know him better so they can give him glory better and to glorify all his attributes. In knowing him better, our faith will be strengthened so that we can face what we must endure in the things he's ordained for us to endure on our journey. Remember, we began the study looking at grace and peace, that the entire Trinity is involved in giving each of his children. So I pray that you and I will rest in such peace. Let's remember to live out the example of humility as Jesus showed us. We worship him as king and lord of all as he conquered death and then offers to us his resurrected life. We have the hope of heaven if we've put our confidence and trust in him as our lord. The hope of a new body, oh, that's good news, that will never have pain and will never mourn and cry anymore. We have the hope of deliverance from not only the power of sin today controlling us, but one day in the future, the presence of sin will no longer be our experience. What a great day. Lord, I thank you for the truths of your word. I thank you that you were kind and that you want us to know the last chapter. You want us to know how things are going to end because when we know that, we can keep pressing on no matter how trying and difficult and painful life can be. We know that this is temporary and what's coming is so amazing. Lord, help us to walk faithfully in the steps you've had for us to do today and to honor you in each and every detail. In your name, amen. Thank you, ladies. And I think...